On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the latest discoveries in the science of hope and optimism, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. The ornithologist Drew Lanham is lyrical in the languages of science and of humans and of birds. He's a professor of wildlife ecology, a naturalist, a self-described hunter-slash-conservationist. And he's a most beautiful writer of poetry and author of the celebrated book, The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. His way of seeing and hearing and noticing the present and the history that birds traverse through our backyards and beyond is a revelatory way to be present to the world and to life in our time. In that moment of that little brown bird that's always so inquisitive, that that sings reliably, in that moment that I'm thinking about that wren, I'm not thinking about anything else. That's joy. And so sometimes I think we have to recognize the joy that the world didn't give us and that the world can't take away in the midst of the world taking away what it can. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Drew Lanham has always been, in his words, an edge creature. First of all, by growing up between the homes of his parents and his grandmother, who he called Mamatha, a quarter mile in distance, but worlds apart, in Edgefield County, South Carolina. Today, Drew Lanham lives in Seneca, South Carolina, and is a professor at Clemson University. I brought his voice and perspective north to be part of the 2021 Great Northern Festival in On Being's hometown of the Twin Cities. But we recorded from our respective homes during pandemic lockdown. Well, here we are. Is it true that you're in a writing shed? <laughs> yeah, I, well, yeah, that's that's what I uh, I play it off as. It's a little shed called The Thicket. It was originally a storage house, and I... I converted it out of necessity for for hoarding stuff that I want to surround me and also mm. to have a little escape pod. So yeah. so that's where I am today. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, my story is one of really sort of searching for space constantly because as a child, I really didn't have it. I sort of always shared it. I didn't have my own room. I shared my grandmother's bedroom and the bed for um a good while until I got bigger and then but hmm. so this this place is um it's Thoreauvian in a way in that you know Thoreau's Walden was really not very far from his mother's home and this is the side yard it's not the backyard only because I couldn't get it in the backyard right and so it sits like this appendix of a building on the side of the house, but it's important. When I, I don't get out here, I miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to read um, what I think are the first lines of The Home Place, the introduction. Um, you wrote, I am a man in love with nature. I am an eco-addict, consuming everything that the outdoors offers in its all-you-can-sense seasonal buffet. 
I am a wildling born of forests and fields and more comfortable on unpaved back roads and winding woodland paths than in any place where concrete, asphalt, and crowds prevail. <laughs> um, you write also somewhere in that same, near the same passage, why does my blood run wild? That's a question you've asked. Um, I just want to ask as we start, like how far back, and can you even feel it in your body, does that question and your sense of being this way go? Wow. Probably to, I don't know, four or five years old, maybe. Hmm. You know, that point in time when I was given some freedom, allowed to wander a little bit beyond my parents' eye view or my grandmother's eye view. So I would think maybe then, but certainly by six, Hmm. because by six, I was in Head Start and that kind of thing and um, and out and, and sort of wandering around the yard at least. And not long after that, had my first bicycle. So I, I think back to those times with my grandmother and I'm thinking of her throwing out handfuls of grits to what she calls snowbirds um, that we know mm. as juncos and but sparrows and all these other things or her talking about owls being bad omen when they were calling around the house. So most of my life I've thought about things beyond four walls and, and what was in the woods or what was roaming in the darkness that I couldn't see. So it's been it's been a long time. Hmm. Um, you know, I had something so interesting as I'm talking to you that is becoming clear to me that was just all the way through. I mean, I, I tried to read as much as I could, and there's so much that you bring together in your imagination and your experience and your wisdom that comes together in your life and in your body that our culture doesn't always bring together, at least overtly, <laughs> um, you know, so I mean, get one place to, to to kind of dive into that would be the different kinds of influences that you've um, talked about that form you and that you impart as a teacher. Right. Aldo Leopold and Marvin Gaye, um, <laughs> Rachel Carson and Martin Luther King Jr. Well, Krista, I mean, it's you know, for me, imagination is kind of this frontier that never ends. I mean, if you're lucky you get to to always walk toward this horizon that's constantly moving away from you. So in, in imagining my life and living and reimagining really um, the past, I think about those people who have influenced me. I mean, that certainly Aldo Leopold is, is among them because um, I, I remember picking up his book, A Sand County Almanac, in my brother's room. And my brother's room was a place that you ventured into at great peril. Okay. Um, <laughs> this but, was a book from 1949. Yeah, from 1949. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. I happened to see it on his desk, and it had, and there were these birds, these geese on the cover. And, and so I picked up this book, and I just sort of flipped through it. I may have even stolen it for a day or two and fell in love with the words. I fell in love with the illustrations that were there that were just these sketches. 
And some of that language stuck because I was living some of what he had written in terms of our family living off the land and, and seeing my father work so very hard to make a life for us, my mother and my father make a life for us off the land. So Leopold stuck there in a way that that wasn't evident to me really until lots of, of years later. Here, here's one way you just kind of summarize some of his admonitions that you kept with you. To be one of those who cannot live without wild things, keep all the parts, listen hmm. to the mountain, and preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. That says it all, right? <laughs> I mean... Yeah, it's amazing. You know, that, that if you can sort of hoard experiences, which I think is, is part of what I do, uh, along with books and, and other things, but if you can hoard experiences out there, then for me, that that informs who I am. So seeing my father burn a piece of land to keep it productive or being out with him when he was cutting a tree and thinking about Leopold's good oak and thinking about the annual rings in that tree as history and not just mm-hmm. how the tree grew, then it 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 helps me understand and sort of refined my place in the past, but also now. And and hopefully my students, I, I ask them to write their own stories about the land, their own good oak stories, um, sort of their own histories and, and where they sit in the pantheon. Yeah. You know, I I want to keep going on all of this, but I realize I wanted to ask you also what was the first bird you fell in love with? I, I, we need to kind of, we need to anchor this conversation in that love of yours as well. You know, I, I go back to those snowbirds, to those juncos that would flock in frost and snow. And I would imagine that frost was snow sometimes because I wanted it so badly. But those little gray and white birds that my grandmother was throwing grits to um, and the sparrows that that were out there. So, you know, I, I write in the book about this sorrowful tale of this Christmas tale of a BB gun and a chipping sparrow. Yeah. And so that that made a great impression on me that even now when I see chipping sparrows, they're they're some of the most beautiful birds to me. And I, I can remember holding that bird in my hand. Um, shortly after I'd, I had killed it and thinking I could hide it from God. Mm. And I, I buried it in the yard to try and do that. But um, so those tiny birds, even though, you know, there were vultures that I, buzzards as we called them back then, that I laid out in the pasture trying to attract and hearing wild turkeys gobbling on spring mornings or barred owls on summer evenings, bobwhite quail, which are, are probably in this thicket here. I've, I've got more representations of bobwhite quail around me than any other bird. And Do you have any, can you give me any of the song of them? If you're so good at that, is there any, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is there a little soundscape you can insert into this conversation? Yeah. A, a barred owl is, I mean, it's, and you you hear that on a summer evening and bobwhite quail are are calling 
Cubby's home that And those songs of barred owls and bobwhite quail sort of, I mean, that bookended things. Hmm. Because those barred owls were often the last thing that you'd hear in the evening and quail might be the first thing that you hear in the morning. So in between that, there were all these other birds, many of which I did not know the names of. Um, You know, yellow-billed cuckoos, my grandmother called them rain crows. And so I would listen to those birds and hear that cow, 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 cow. And I would hear that. And initially, before I learned what those birds were, what yellow-billed cuckoos were, where they came from, before I thought about the science of the bird, I thought about the rain coming because my grandmother told me, well, Matha said, when you hear that bird, rain is coming. So there was a different kind of ornithology, Krista, that I grew up with that was sort of mystic before it was science. And this is On Being, today with ornithologist Drew Lanham. I want to draw you out on something that you've you've written about and and um, in many ways. You said, I am as much a scientist as I am a black man. My skin defines me no more than my heart does. But somehow my color often casts my love affair with nature and shadow. Um, it also feels to me like your fascination with and the way you attend to and delight in and honor the all the the multifaceted colors and patterns and forms of the natural world, you kind of just demonstrated this, also is reflected in the way you you see human beings and you see human society. Well, I, you know, to me, and I mean, it's, there's so much that's simple out there that appears simple, mm-hmm. but that's really complex. I mean, it's sort of like the sparrow that appears brown from far away and hard to identify. But if you just take the time to get to know that sparrow, then you see all of these hues. You see five, six, seven shades of brown on this bird. And you see little splashes of ochre or yellow or gray and black and white and all of these things on this bird that at first glance just appeared to be brown. And so in taking that time to delve into not just what that bird is, but who that bird is and to, to understand, to get from some egg in a nest to where it is 
to grace you with its presence that it's taken for this bird trials and tribulations and and escaping all of these hazards. And so I, I tend to think about, I try to think about people as much as I can mm. in that way, that each of us has had these struggles from the nest to where we have flown now and, and the journeys that, that we are on. And so I think that's important. You know, something that... um I'm ashamed to say I hadn't thought about uh, until I really deeply thought about it reading some of your writing is, I mean, you've, you've, you've done a lot of pondering about how slavery and the aftermath of slavery created this alienation of people from the land. And I mean, there are many facets to this, right? Also, mm-hmm. you, you know, that people were once forced into nature in places that environments that we now pass through and even take refuge in were once full of pain. Well, you know, that's the, um, that's this constant tension mm-hmm. that we're living in now, this history, you know, whether there are, are trees growing over it that have, have grown out of soil that people toiled or there are rice fields that stretch as far as the eye can see that are only there because of black hands and, and we're watching black ducks and black neck stilts and hopeful for black rails in those places that were created by black human beings, hmm. not voluntarily. Hmm. So, so enslavement is everywhere. I mean, it's, it's not just here in my home place and in the South, but I think about it in other places. And then I try to think in other landscapes about, the history and what that means. So Krista, to me, again, they're inextricably linked that culture and, and care. I mean, we have to understand where we've been, you know, I guess is the cliche, but when I see these landscapes, I cannot in honoring what my ancestors endured in that nest really to get me here to where I am fledged, and flying, Hmm. I cannot in good conscience ignore the bitter for the beautiful. Right. Would you tell the story of the bobolinks, like how focusing on this particular bird kind of points at the forgotten history of of public lands? Yeah, you know, bobolinks are extraordinary birds i mean they they are blackbirds they they give this appearance almost of being tuxedoed um in appearance but they spend like me they spend life um in two different places they spend um a good portion of their non-breeding cycle in south america so on the pampas and you know in these exotic places where we think about gauchos and Llanos and those kinds of things, but they're, they're there in those grasslands. And then in the spring, they migrate north to breeding grounds that um, are mostly north temperate, but they migrate through the southeast just as um, the rice crop that enslaved would have worked in these marshes to plant, just as some of these plants are coming into a stage where they can provide sustenance. Um, for these birds. 
and and the birds would descend on these crops and and you're mm-hmm. talking about crops that meant millions and millions of dollars to these white planters and um and the enslaved had worked dawn to dusk trying to grow it and so it became incumbent upon them to keep the birds out of the crop these rice birds as they oh and it sounds like there were also millions of birds right yes millions of of, i mean just hordes of them so Mm -hmm. you, you can imagine you know, skies darkening with birds and then those birds descending onto a rice crop. And um, and so sometimes people would would have to stay up through the night to disturb the birds, to oh, to keep them from roosting in the rice crops. And they would kill the birds. And so and sometimes one of the delicacies was to to eat these birds um, full of rice. Mm. So and then the birds would continue on their trek northward. But then would come back in the fall on their way back to their wintering grounds in South America, and they would hit the rice crops again. So I don't have to go very far to think about birds being connected to bondage and then conservation um, being connected to the Constitution in these ways. And so all of that through that little bird that has this amazing, amazing sort of discordant, broken music box of a song. Yes. Can you, I can, I, there was a, I think you wrote something for Audubon and they had a link to listen to it. And it, yeah, I, could you share that? Yeah. I mean, it's uh gosh, I wish I could imitate it. It's, 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 it's just, and it, and it, you hear that, and again, it's a it's a sound of spring. Hmm. Um, but now it's a bird that's declining for several reasons. And so, you know, when I when I talk about my ornithology and 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 what my grandmother taught me, I'm realizing that part of the way that I teach ornithology and people about birds now is is born in part of her telling me about birds in a different way. And I want people to to see birds not just as things to count or to list. Um, that's an important aspect of, of it all. But I, I want them to see the stories in these birds and to be able to, to travel back through time and understand what it may have exacted on people, hmm. but then also to understand where we are now and how we can protect those birds. After a short break, more with Drew Lanham. You can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every show we do on the On Being podcast feed. That's wherever podcasts are found. On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, how will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org.
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, experiencing the world and life in our time through the ornithologist, hunter-conservationist, and poet's eyes and ears of Drew Lanham. He's the author of the celebrated book, The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. You wrote a beautiful um, piece called Elegy in Three Plagues <laughs> in 2020. And it was interesting to read that even you, you spend your time um, in the natural world, attending to the natural world, loving the natural world. Um, but it was still even a new experience for you, and it was an experience a lot of people had, that all of the, the travel you'd been doing or the wild excursions you'd been doing, um, were you were sent instead into your backyard, <laughs> mm-hmm. your backyard lawn and your Adirondack chair. Um, and that also was an experience of discovery. Yeah, and still is in many ways. It, um, you know, quarantine and, and being sort of sentenced to home in a way is, I mean, it's different so, for so many of us. But yeah. F- but for me, it was, it was sudden stop because I was approaching my migratory period when, you know, that part of the year when I'm (laughs) following the birds and, uh, and sitting back there in the backyard for, for weeks, for months and, and just watching the seasons come and go and the birds with them. It's, it's sort of like the, you know, the leftovers that get better (laughs) up to a Mm. point, you know, they're not there. We don't appreciate them when we first cook them. And then, you're like, oh, wow, you know, that that soup is really good two days wow. later. So the backyard became that. And there were these birds, things like rose-breasted grosbeaks that um, that I was hearing from my friends and seeing on social media that they were having them in their backyard. And I haven't hadn't gotten any rose-breasted grosbeaks yet. But then suddenly there they were one morning and they were sticking around for longer than I remember them or longer than I had been at home to see them before. Yeah. And it made me realize just how much on the go I had been, but also just what these birds were doing, that these were birds that had come from Central America and many of them had come through the Caribbean and, and now they were with me. Yeah. And then I was going to send some of those birds to Vermont and New Hampshire and Minnesota and that there was no way for anyone to prove because these birds weren't marked that birds that I was seeing one week weren't the birds that they were seeing the next week. And so I began to imagine sort of that connecting, but sitting by my plastic pond full of little fish and frogs and sometimes with a beverage was, um, you know, that was sort of the daily saving grace in a way. Yeah, you even use the word pilgrimage, pilgrimage mm. to your backyard. I think you say you say some things that feel so helpful to me about the importance and the the beauty and the goodness of learning about the common birds. Mm. And yeah, just I mean, this imagination you have—I don't have to be an ornithologist to, to kind of take that in, right? To think about how. You, you say to think about how important your backyard can be for birds, that it can be critical space for them to grab food, that that they lift off hmm. for faraway places. And your backyard has been a place that fueled that and that you witnessed this rest and refueling 
and respite in their creaturely existence. <laughs> um, I found it like something that any of us can pick up. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're fortunate to, I mean, I, I took backyard for granted, right? And, yeah, and those of us who got to go to the backyard were yeah, lucky, right? We were the yeah. fortunate, yeah. Yeah, and but then in in seeing those gross beaks that were exotic, I was watching those gross beaks interact with my cardinals, my you know grandmother's mm-hmm. red birds. That I mean, how, who can ignore that? Who can ignore a, a red bird? So, in thinking about those cardinals, I can remember seeing. Yeah, there would be you know, eight or a dozen rose-breasted grosbeaks back there, but then there were eight or 10 cardinals. And I began to to know some of these cardinals, you know, by crest character or a female mm. that appeared just a little redder than another female or even behavior or where they like to perch or watching a cardinal, watching a red bird as the sun would go down on a day, the end of a day that still had a little bit of chill in it and watching a bird sit in the last shafts of sunlight, watching the setting sun blaze through that bird. To me, it gave me this appreciation again for for the things that we often pass by, that, that cardinals, as common as they might be for some of us, common, you know, is a is a word that sort of dismisses sometimes what we should be paying attention to. Yeah. I I feel like I I can't, I, I feel, there's part of me that really wants to make this confession to you, which is something I've thought so much about in my life that I know, I didn't have family like you did that taught me the names of birds or or really that paid attention to them. And I also in my backyard, I don't know. Maybe I see some of those cardinals here in Minnesota that you saw in your yard. Um, mm. You're right. It's arresting. And I tend to think red bird rather than like your grandmother <laughs> rather than cardinal. Um, and I've always wondered, uh, I, I feel I feel ashamed of this that I don't know the names. Um, and I also think I've kind of felt like it's too late to start. So I will just appreciate them. I don't know. Do you have any advice for me on that? I have no idea how... Um, how many people are like this, or if this is my problem? Well, it's it's not a problem. There's no shame in not knowing the name of a bird. If, if it's a red bird to you, it's a red bird to you. I, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's at some point, as a scientist, it's important for me to be able to identify birds by accepted common names and Latin names and, mm-hmm. and those things. But then I revert frequently to what my grandmother taught me because I say the birds know who they are. They, you you don't, they don't need you to tell them that. But over time, when, when we relax into a thing and maybe just being with the bird, then, you know, your brain kind of um, relaxes, it loosens Mm -hmm. and things soak in. And I I think that's the, the key with a lot of learning but not getting the name right immediately does not in any way diminish their ability to appreciate the pretty, as Aldo mm-hmm. Leopold talks about. And right, so, right. So seeing that bird and saying, oh, my God, what is that? Look at it. 
and, and you're yeah. looking at it and you can see all of these hues and you can watch its behavior and you may hear it sing. Well, in that moment, it's a beautiful thing, no matter yeah. what its name is. Sometimes what I try to get people to do is to disconnect for a moment from that that absolute need to list and name and just see the bird. Just see that bird. And you begin to absorb it in a way, in a part of your brain that I don't know the name of, but I think it's a part of your brain that's also got some heart in it. Yeah. And then and and then guess what? The the name when you do learn it, it sticks in a different way. Right. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I can count the number of times. If I think about it, I think I almost always say the same thing, but it always feels like a huge statement when I've seen some of these beautiful birds. Um, mm. i like, oh my, aren't you beautiful, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> and, and that's enough. Yeah. And, you know, again, to kind of wander back into the realm of complexity, I mean, you've written so interestingly about how they're – all the naming – in science and in Western culture has has been problematic as well. And and even the question of what wildness is hmm. is a more complicated and who who gets to say that, right? And yeah. and when it was said and how it was acted on is so much more complicated uh than might seem obvious. Again, that intersection of culture and place and land and and humans. Well, I, you know, it sticks. One of the things that sticks with me um, from from current culture and 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 Hamilton, even and, and mm. thinking about um, who gets to tell the story, right? Yeah. And and the names. And so, I'm intensely interested in language and what different people call things and these names and what names mean. So that indigenous and first nations people who have this diverse, all the, all of these languages yeah. and, and who a Raven is to one nation versus who the Raven is to another nation or people within that nation, you know, so all of that is important, I think for us to, to pay attention to. And all of those are different ornithologies. Mm. In Western science, we we boil down to Latin binomial and to the genotype, and and that's that's in phenotype, and all of that is critical and it's important in what we do as scientists. But I think again, sort of broadening the scope of vision so that we see the big picture, we need to understand who birds are to others, what land is to others that. If yeah. I if my ancestors were forced into nature and hung from trees, I might not have the same interest in going out into the forest and naming the trees. So that is part of my mission to offer a different prism mm -hmm. that people can maybe, maybe take a glimpse through.
Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with ornithologist Drew Lanham. This essay you wrote, Elegy and Three Plagues, um, it's about a lot of things. and, and um, I mean, it's about 2020, but it's also about how 2020 was a microcosm of everything that we have to deal with for the rest of our lifetimes. Mm. But you have this sentence, and this may not be fair to just pull out a sentence and ask you to say what you're saying, but um, I just found it so stunning. Um, it's, it's kind of, you're kind of summarizing where some of this takes you. You said, our task then has been pathfinding, and of course you're making ecological analogies, has been pathfinding through the improbable without ending up at the inevitable. Hmm. Well... Um, who could have predicted any of this? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, well, it, it's <laughs> um, some of it we could. Yeah, have so, some some of it we could. But, yeah, but, but then it, you know, um, five, six, ten years ago, um, we would have said, okay, if this happens and this and this and this and this at the same time, and we would say, oh no, that that's not yeah. probable. That's a movie. Right. That's it's a, not that, real life. <laughs> that's a that's a movie that I don't want to see. Right. And 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 to try to get through that to some place of 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 how do you get through that to be whole on the other side? Yeah. How how do you track that path in a way that doesn't send you careening over some hillside into some abyss from which you can never climb out? And uh, that's sort of the daily task now, mm-hmm. because, you know, all of these things are, are sort of have tossed down in the trail in front of you. They've fallen like trees. They're coming down the upslope down towards you like rocks that have been knocked loose by something up there. And you don't know what it is. And you've got to try to get through all of that, that you, yeah. You knew the trail may get rocky, but you never thought that it would get this rocky. Yeah. And so here you are. So how do you get through that improbable? So, you know, when I wrote that essay, and and that essay was really sort of this compilation of as much as I keep a journal. And... Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I think of these things as plagues again. I go back to my grandmother because she, man, she used to always talk about the end of the world. Yeah. And that stuck with me. In my kid brain, I, you know, I was imagining frogs and locusts, locusts. And, yeah. <laughs> and all of that stuff. Yeah. But mm-hmm. she never told me about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, I, I, you know, in some ways I, I, wonder what she would say but then I I track back to ancestors again and certainly they thought had to think of chattel slavery as a plague and how do you get through that yeah Um, for my parents how did they get through Jim Crow you know how how do people who are abused get through the day and tough times not knowing where the blows will come from so I'm trying it's a practice right Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm trying to tread carefully, trying to get through it as best I can. And it's not always easy because this just seems like an uphill hike in mud. 
Yeah. You know, one of the um, the themes that's come through in a lot of conversations I've had in the last couple of years, actually, is the relationship that it almost it feels countercultural and and you know almost dubious to talk about, but the relationship between justice and joy. Hmm. And the importance of knowing what you love in order to have the resilience and the and in order to be able to um, to know what you need to fight and what needs to be re- rebuilt and remade. And you know, you obviously you take joy in being an ornithologist, and you've also said, and you you actually say, you know, you know, as a scientist, this is almost not a scientific statement that you hear joy in birdsong. Well, I, I do think that um, that joy, in part, is the justice we give ourselves. Um, mm. And for me, you know, the, the songs of birds are important. You know, they, they signal the beginning of the day and, and the end of it. And what birds are doing in, in their lives and carrying on. But I, I think joy must be something you try to have joy is something that no one can take from you. Yeah. That it's something that you can hoard and you can hold in your heart in a way and you can protect that joy in a way that when all of those things on this rough trod trail around you are threatening you, that you at some quiet moment can pull that joy out and experience it. And even if it's just for a moment, you know, that's the bird flying through the yard. That's the cardinal. Yeah. Um, that's the song. That's the memory of something good that you say, you know what? For me, I have to find those moments daily. And again, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a struggle sometimes to, to endure all of this stuff and to say, ah, there it is. You know, as you said, that bird, ah, look at that. Yeah. And look at that. And, and I've, I've had those days where nothing is going right. And, um, and it seems like there's more coming that's going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. But in that moment of that little brown bird that's always so inquisitive, that, that sings reliably, in that moment that I'm thinking about that wren, I'm not thinking about anything else. Mm-hmm. That's joy. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I think we have to recognize the joy that the world didn't give us and that the world can't take away in the midst of the world taking away what it can. Yeah. And as hard as it is to say to find it, sometimes it's in a song. You know, my grandmother mm-hmm. sometimes would just sing and, you know, that was her joy hmm. or just hum, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How does that, how do those wrens sound in your backyard? Oh, gosh. You know, there's this, um, one of their songs is this tea kettle song is tea kettle, tea kettle, tea, tea kettle, tea kettle, tea kettle, tea. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's one of the first songs that, that you hear in the morning, but wrens sing all year long. But what I know now is that as the days get, sort of incrementally longer, their songs get stronger. And, you know, sometime in March, those wrens 
will begin to build nests mm. and they'll begin this cycle of making more of themselves. <laughs> and in that, there's some hope. There's some joy. There is some inspiration for looking forward. Mm-hmm. And and that to me is what, you know, a little brown bird singing tea kettle, tea kettle, <laughs> tea kettle, tea. That's what it brings. I mean, because mm-hmm. that's their audacious birds. They're small, but they're some of the loudest birds out there. And uh, they're inquisitive. There's no crevice, crack, or cranny in the backyard that they don't know about. <laughs> okay. I'm going to look for them. Um, I do love, um, there are many, there have been many mission statements in, in what you've been saying. I, I, I liked this thing you wrote, which has a lot of theological, religious imagery. But as you've made that your own, you said, doing good things for and revering nature are just acts. There is righteousness in conserving things, staving off extinction, and simply admiring the song of a bird. In my moments of confession in front of strangers, talking about my love of something greater than any of us, I become a freer me. I am reborn. Yeah. I, you know, as much as I, uh, I ran from my grandmother's first Sunday God, you know, I worship every bird that I see and wildness is a wayward weed. Um, and, but, but it's, but it's also worthy of adoration and worship. So each time I see in those things that, are flying or that are wild and free. I see a, a bit of me in that. And and then that whole creation story my grandmother used to tell me about, I become a part of that. You know, um and, <laughs> right, I, yeah. and, and I get to evolve through it. So um my grandmother <laughs> never mentioned that word evolve, but no. um, part of what she taught me gave me the strength to do it. Hmm. I feel like you were touching on um, what feels to me like just one of the strangest things about us as creatures that just becoming fully ourselves hmm. is the work of a lifetime. Oh, that's it. That That is. That's, that's the practice. That's the practice. But it seems it's... It, it's um, it is. I just think it's profoundly strange and interesting. I agree. I, you know, it's again, it's, um, you can go back and you can think about what you thought your life or life or the world would be like. And, um, and you get taught the lesson of, of the profoundly strange, right? Things that you could yeah. not have imagined that were improbable. And you, you're living in them. And then you hopefully get through them. And you're on the other side somehow. And you can't quite figure out how you did it. <laughs> but then there was some joy that you held on to somehow. Yeah. And there you are.
Drew Lanham is an alumni distinguished professor of wildlife ecology, master teacher, and certified wildlife biologist at Clemson University. He is the poet laureate of Edgefield County, South Carolina, where he grew up. He's the author of The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. And he has a wonderful collection of poetry and meditations called Sparrow Envy, Field Guide to Birds and Lesser Beasts. Special thanks this week to Kate Nordstrom and the whole team at The Great Northern, who introduced Drew Lanham to us. Learn more at thegreatnorthernfestival.com. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lauren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Scheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Padre Gautuma, Gautam Shrikashin, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Matt Martinez, and Amy Chatelaine. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.